Hello, bonsoir, and welcome to the Get French Football News Show. I'm your host, Nathan Staples, and joining me this week are Eric Devine and our editor-in-chief, Christian Nouri. A day late, but never without debate, we are here to sift through another intriguing week of Liga action. But unlike some of the fixtures this week, our message won't be blurred by the fog. But before that, here's the latest headlines. Liga 17th match day was marred by bad weather, with several matches being moved, postponed or nearly invisible as fog proved problematic throughout the country on Saturday. Things have cleared up significantly by Sunday as a trio of clashes between European hopefuls took place, capped by leaders Nice trip to Paris Saint-Germain. Dijon Marseille had been scheduled for Friday evening but was moved to Saturday early afternoon and Bafatimbi Gomi scored a late winner in a 2-1 win that saw the visitors move just three points off the European places. What would have normally been Saturday's early match pitted Bordeaux against Monaco and France's and Europe's most prolific attack was at it again, scoring twice inside four minutes before adding two goals late on the final 4-0 margin spurred on by Radamel Falcao's hat-trick. In the multiplex, Bastia got goals from Gael Danic and Alain Saint-Maximin to uh, secure a vital home win against Metz 2-0, while in-form Nicolas de Preville scored for the third match running to help lift hosts Lille over Montpellier 2-1. Nancy continued their fine form at home, winning their fourth straight in all competitions at a freezing stud Marcel Pico. 2-0 over Angers. In Toulouse, the host got a hat-trick from Ola Toivonen to win 3-2 against a desperate Lorient. Tuesday, uh, sorry, sun, Sunday's early match saw an opportunistic Lyon hold off 10 men Ren 1-0. Mathieu Valbuena's goal on 28 minutes enough to separate the two sides. Saint-Étienne recorded the same result at home to Gangomp through Roman Hamouma as the visitors dominated the ball but could not find a way to breach in form Stéphane Ruffier. In the late match, Nice opened up a 2-0 lead against Paris Saint-Germain but the hosts clawed their way back in the match in the second half to earn a 2-2 draw with Edison Cavani netting a brace. In Ligue 2, Brest's win at Nîmes was enough to see them go top as Troyes and Reims could only draw, while the relegation battle intriguingly seems four teams level on points at the foot of the table. In off-the-field news, uh, Antoine Griezmann came third in the Ballon d'Or voting with Cristiano Ronaldo winning the award for the fourth time. And Lyon have announced a €100 million Euro investment from a Chinese firm the amount being equal to 20% of the club's shares. And that's all for the news. But remember, for all the latest headlines, head on over to our website at www.getfootballnewsfrance and follow us on Twitter at GFFN. We start this week at the Parc de Prince as Paris Saint-Germain came from 2-0 down at half-time to draw 2 all with Nice. It was an interesting game with plenty going on, but Christian... Was a point enough for PSG in this one? Did they need the victory, really? Well, I think, Nathan, there's been a lot of negative hype in the French media in the last two weeks from uh, the side that Paris Saint-Germain are in total crisis. Let's relativise for a second. This 2-2 draw mathematically puts them four points behind Ogis and Nice. We're not even into 2017 yet. No, this is not a dreadful result for them, given the circumstances and the pressure they were under especially to go in 2-0 down at half-time uh, and, and come back after having that loss, uh, that 3-0 loss away to Montpellier the weekend before and then drawing to Ludogorets and missing the first place in their Champions League group as a result. I think they've done very well, especially under a hostile crowd. You've got to remember they were booed off at half-time. So all in all, they've managed to gather themselves together somewhat. Sunday night's performance was far far from perfect, far from the Paris Saint-Germain that was so ruthlessly efficient under Laurent Blanc, but four points difference behind a side that's never been in this sort of position before with a bunch of players, uh, apart from maybe Dante and, and, and Balotelli, who have never even really been in a title race before uh, in a top European league. So I don't think from a Paris Saint-Germain point of view, there is much to worry about for now in terms of simply the points. The performances is a different matter. 
Eric, let's talk about that performance a little bit. And I mean, in the first half, it wasn't like Paris Saint-Germain were being dominated by Nice. It was almost two counter-attacks that really cut them up. But it's again a case of Paris Saint-Germain not taking their chances when they get them, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Cavani uh, did redeem himself with the two goals that he did score. But uh, it, it was frustrating to see PSG at loose ends. They looked uh, sharp enough going forward. Uh, I think Baratti had a spectacular game. Uh, really driving play going forward, but I think uh, what this really serves to underscore is is how this team has has evolved, and by that I mean the role of Adrian Rabio. I think that it's no coincidence that his being out of the side has corresponded with PSG only uh, picking up two wins in their last competitive, six competitive fixtures, uh, and those being over Lyon and Angers. Uh, the dynamism and drive that he gives that midfield, I think, is something that no other player can offer. I think that. Verratti has a, a lovely eye for a pass and is a great tackler. He doesn't have that same directness and, and physicality going forward that uh, that any other player on the team can offer. Matuidi's a, a willing runner, uh, but he's not the same sort of goal, goal threat that Rabio is. I think that uh, you know having him out of the side has really forced the team to uh, re- readjust in a number of ways, and they're not doesn't seem that they're entirely comfortable doing at this point in time. I think that uh, the failed experiment with four two three one has been, you know, rightly abandoned. I think that in the absence of Javier Pastore, uh, that system doesn't ha- doesn't have any decent ends. I think it, it requires too much work on the in terms of the wide players that PSG don't really have in terms of being orthodox wingers to make that system work. So playing the four three three makes sense, uh, but you know, get, I think getting the personnel wrong was was a problem. I think that again, in the absence of, of a dynamic Forward force in midfield, uh, they, there should have been more. Uh, there should have been more in attack uh, for PSG. I think that Lucas should have started from the off. I think that he's been really the only player to come with any credit for the first three months of the season, uh, four months of the season from PSG's squad, and he's the only player to, for me to seem to have improved uh, under under Unai Emery. He's he's indispensable, and for him not to have started and then to have to come on and and play on the wrong side of the pitch. I just don't understand it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was some good moments for PSG going forward. I think they, they could have won, won the match on another day, but um, not decisive enough for me and and still, and still a little bit worrying as to how they've managed uh, injuries to their squad. Yeah, let's talk about that selection up top, really, that we, we touched upon last week as well, where... Di Maria has been criticised recently and we talked about the form that Ben Arthur had been in the last couple of games given the start and to see both him and Lucas not start the game, Christian, was that a surprise really to go with maybe Matuidi's there to to cover for the full-backs bombing forward for Nice but is that maybe a, a bit too conservative at home for, for someone of PSG's standing? Well, I think it was either Eric or Adam in this week's Ligue 1 review who said that ultimately Unai Emery showed Ojus and he's too much respect with the setup that he went with, first of all, he went with the 4-3-3. Um, and I think, yes, there are issues with this 4-2-3-1 without Pastore potentially, but Ben Arthur and Lucas Moura, admittedly the results have not shown it, but they have been increasing in terms of good form of late. So I think it's Adam who argued this case that ultimately Paris Saint-Germain showed Augustinius too much respect. And what ended up happening is both sides sort of outthought the other one and both set up quite conservatively. The first half saw very little attacking play, very little uh, intent to hold on to the ball from Ujicinis, uh, who were very happy to set up with sort of five very clearly at the back uh, in defence. And so Blesma Tweedy played down the left and the only real danger that Paris Saint-Germain posed Ujicinis throughout 90 minutes was via the fullbacks, the two fullbacks overlapping Ricardo Pereira and Dalbert on each side and getting in between that hole between the left-sided centre-back and right-sided centre-back and the two win-backs. And ultimately, those are where those two goals come from. I think to say that Paris Saint-Germain had some good moments is even almost compromising because, yes, they showed good fight to come out of the blocks in the second half, but both goals are from... Ojesini's mistakes, really, really big mistakes. The first goal sees uh, Aurier, I believe it is, come down the right-hand side. He beats Dalbert in a pace race, the Ojesini's left-back, who is holding his shoulder halfway through trying to track 
Aurier back. Um, Dalbert should have been taken off at half-time. He's been confirmed today he's going to be out for three weeks with a shoulder injury. And Dojecini's manager, Lucien Favre, admitted that at the, end of the, at the end of the game. So if Boscagli had been starting that second half, there's no way Aurier gets that much space down that uh, right-hand side. And then the second goal from Paris Saint-Germain is a cross from Levin Kurzawa. He's given far too much time by Ricardo Pereira, first of all. And then ultimately, Johan Cardinal makes a big mistake or there's a miscommunication between him and Dante. So Paris Saint-Germain actually didn't create any clear goal-scoring opportunities, apart from I thought they were quite effective from corners. Thiago Silva had a couple of free headers, which he probably should have done better with. But otherwise, you've got two moments of, of good saves from Johan Cardinal. The first comes in the very first few minutes of the game off a Levin Kurzawa shot. And then I can't remember who the Paris Saint-Germain player is who forces a great save from Cardinal down low uh, to his left, I believe, in the dying embers of the match. But Paris Saint-Germain, from a creative uh, outpoint, were completely shut out by Ogesinis. And if I'm Unai Emery, despite you know how crazy the match was in the end, that's my biggest concern. Yeah, I compared Johan Cardinal to uh, Fabian Barthez the other week, and it's nice of him to do the bad and the good, so it makes me look a little bit better anyway. But uh, Eric, we'll talk about Unai Emery a little bit more. And like you've mentioned, it's, it's two wings of the last six competitive games, although he's probably thanking the scheduling gods that the next couple of games are against the final two at least and before the uh, winter breaker against Gangomp and Lorient is is there's some pressure now on him to go out and get results and, and stop gaining momentum before that Champions League game comes around again I think absolutely I think that now that the league should be the, the primary focus I mean we, we, I think we'll have to assume that they'll uh, defeat Lille tomorrow in the Coupe de la Ligue. That'll be around as well, as well as the Coupe de France. But the league needs to be the absolute priority. Um, use those cup competitions to give the younger players uh, more of a chance, but uh, play a consistent first-choice 11. And and not only that, but play players in the positions in which they best function. I think that you know Angel Di Maria has a, a much bigger reputation than, than Lucas Mora does, but I think that there's no question Lucas Mora should be playing on the right in that 4-3-3. Uh, Di Maria is versatile enough to play another flank as well as is Mora, and there, there's no reason that um, Di Maria, given his form, should be given any sort of privilege uh, when, as the, as to the way Emery sets his team up tactically and personnel-wise. Uh, I think also that Robbie will be back in the new year. That's, that's my understanding, um, and I think that that'll make a big difference as well, and that this team can look to go forward with uh, one, of, one of Mata uh, and Baratti at the base of midfield and Robbie and Matuidi in, in central midfield. I think yeah, that yeah. I, I, okay. I think that, I think that PSG for me what they need right now is just to have uh, a dominant performance and they really haven't had that uh, excepting that that match against uh, that match against Red in the recent past. Uh, I think that there were signs of that in that first half against Leon. They looked really really sharp, uh, but besides that in the match against Ren, it's been quite a while since we've seen a really strong dominant performance from this team and perhaps that's coming, uh, that confidence boosting win, but I don't think that, uh, I don't think that, uh, uh Gangomp or Leo are easy pickings at this point in time. Uh, and the team may have to wait until, uh, until the new year to, to really get that and kick on and, and start to elevate to the level they need to be at. Yeah. At least it's just domestic issues that face them between now and February. But let's talk about Nice a little bit and, and, Christian, they went with the three-five-two that they've tried most of the season, and we we said last week that that might be their best option. But did their tactics work for the for the most part in this one? Yes, yeah, surprisingly and probably counterintuitively, they absolutely did. I think Lucien Favre said as well in the first half. Uh, maybe it was with Canet Plus in the first half, just after the first half had ended. He was saying that he was slightly worried about the three-five-two that he'd gone with because of the extent to which PSG were doubling up on, on the wings with Matuidi and uh, Kosovar and then Aurier and Di Maria. But you have to say they've pulled out. I think what I'm most impressed by from this Eugenie's performance is not even necessarily the tactical setup, but just the ability for some of these young players to pull out incredible performances when it truly matters. William Cyprien is obviously the obvious candidate to look at. That free kick is beautiful. I think it's one of those goals that as a manager you simply, as an opposing manager, you simply just have to accept there's almost nothing that Unai Emery can do to prepare for a situation like that. And there is definitely an element of luck 
with Ojesenis' second goal before half-time. Although the ball from Dalbert to try and pick out player is beautifully weighted and gives him every chance to sort of uh, pounce on uh, an, an inevitable scramble. But to go in 2-0 down, I think even Lucien Favre was shocked. Uh, his, his facial expressions on the touchline were, were almost as if he was dreaming. So uh, from an Ojesenis point of view, they went and they played football in that second half, which was astonishing. I don't think I've ever seen a side, at least in the last three years, go to the Parc des Princes, not even a Champions League side, maybe apart from Barcelona, and actually dominate some of those sequences in the midfield. The interplay between Seri, Cyprien and Belanda especially was absolutely beautiful to watch. And I think that, to me, is the most impressive thing from this Les Aiglons performance. Favre is now famous for that line that we're here to play. And the result almost doesn't matter. He says that often in post-match press conferences. But to have the gumption to go and implement that sort of ethos at the Parc des Princes, the hardest place to play, undoubtedly, in France, and manage not only to, to implement it, but also to derive some success from it, was astounding. Right, they didn't get any great chances in the first half, apart from the two goals that they scored. They had a great chance for a third from Cyprien after a beautiful cutback from Ricardo Pereira. But they were always going to set up to a sort of counter-attacking um, play. And they managed to achieve that very, very well. I mean, the one thing that Favre will be disappointed about is the individual errors. One, on, on his part, initially, by not taking Dalbert off. And two, um, Johan Cardinal, who, who seems to push, push it into Dante and then Cavani, takes advantage for the second goal. I was actually with an analyst yesterday uh, looking at Johan Cardinal's positioning the entire match because it interested me that he was rarely around 30 or more than 30 or 40 centimeters off his goal line. And I think it's probably to compensate for his smaller size, but that is what undoes him with that second uh, Paris Saint-Germain goal. And it also undoes him in, in circle in, sorry, in certain moments when he's looking to, to catch a couple of crosses which he flaps at in the first half. So it's just such small margins that prevented Ojesinis from winning this game. And also to have the mental... But what, as I said, just coming back to the point that impresses me most, one, this idea that they're willing to play uh, their game, doesn't matter who they're playing, and two, the mental strength that some of these youngsters showed, especially not to get down at 2-2, uh, Dalbert's replacement, Olivier Boscagli, did an incredible job on the left-hand side, completely, uh, largely shut out Serge Aurier in the second half. So if, if you're OGC Nice, you're disappointed because you had an incredible opportunity to put yourself seven points clear of Paris Saint-Germain. But you can be proud of yourselves in terms of the performance because you stayed true to your values. You got a draw at the Parc des Princes. And most importantly, you stayed top of the league with only two more games of this side of the calendar to come. Yeah, and I do want to highlight Boscaglia myself as well. I thought he was terrific when he came on for, for I think it was his first league appearance of the season. It's a big stage to come on and he did excellent well. But there's another player that was maybe a surprise inclusion. And I mentioned on the podcast that on the preview show, apologies, that uh, I thought that Mathieu Bodmer might be the man to go in the, in the centre of defence. But it was Arnold Suke instead. Um, Eric, what did you think to his performance on the night? It was... Maybe throwing him in at the deep end, especially when Nice had been playing a, more of a four-four-two recently, but he, he performed admirably on the evening, didn't he? Yeah, I, I think that what we've seen of him uh, in some of Nice's league matches in the Europa League uh, shows that he's a player with good mobility, and I think that that's important to for him to keep keep uh, keep track of Kurzawa. Uh, his task was made a little bit easier, uh, let's face it, by having Amada and Matuidi on that side rather than the more dangerous likes of of, of uh, Di Maria and Verratti. But I, I still think that his positioning was intelligent. Um, he, he had good movement. I, I think that uh, you know, despite being a little bit undersized for a nominal center back, uh, he he did a really good job. He's got good upper body strength and and was able to battle really well with Kurzawa, uh, who you know had had some moments of frustration. I think as a, as a result of of having to cope with a more mobile uh, more mobile center back. I mean, that's that's the thing. We have to look at. Uh, you know, if we had had Paul Bison on the side, on the side, he's not—he's physically imposing player, but he's not as as quick and as lively as his as his uh, Suke. And I think that having that to cope with the the pace of Brazil may have actually been a blessing in disguise that uh, Bison was unavailable for this match, despite um, the captain's strong start to the season. 
Yeah, Nathan, it, just to add there, sorry, I think yeah. that would have been Fowl's biggest sort of quandary before the match started. Who was going to play in that right-sided centre-back role? Suke has only ever been a right-back. And you can argue he's slightly at fault for the second goal. But for an individual who comes in there really as a placeholder, his height is completely disadvantageous for the position that he's trying to play. I have to agree with Eric. I thought he did an admirable job. Yeah, and credit to him and credit to the game, really. That was an entertaining affair that at least keeps the title race interesting for a good while or longer yet. But uh, we'll move on to the other important news this week, which was the draw for the next round of European competitions. There's two tough draws in the Champions League as Paris Saint-Germain drew Barcelona again and Monaco take on Manchester City. While in the Europa League, Lyon will go for Arze Alkmaar and Satetien will face Manchester United. But let's start with Paris Saint-Germain. Um, is this mounting against Barcelona maybe too high for them to climb, Eric? I, I think, Nathan, that I, it's interesting to look at these draws and, and to fantasize about what they might be like. But let's face it, we've got a transfer window to come. We've got players coming back to health. In Pastore and Rabio, uh, this could be a very different uh, PSG come three months from now. I, I think that uh, PSG at full fitness and, and with that four-three-three really clicking, uh, as we've seen it at its best under Emery, or maybe the four-two-three-one that we saw earlier in the season, uh, I think could give Barcelona a, a decent battle. But I mean, again, there's really no way to know uh, what the form of particularly Pastore and Rabio is going to be like when those two return. Uh, is Di Maria going to improve? Are the club going to buy a striker? They've been linked. Uh, we've, we've published a few articles on the site uh, linking PSG with a, a number of uh, South American-based strikers. Uh, so they're obviously in the market for a center forward. Uh, and, yeah, I think it's just a little bit too early to tell in this particular contest. Christian, what do you think to this one? I mean, it's the PSG have faced Barcelona six times in recent memory, and they've not come out on top very often in those. Is there a psychological barrier to get over regardless of what the playing staff will be come February time? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, if you're Nasser Al-Khalifi, the PSG president, you're abs- I mean, he's probably still right now, as we speak, Nathan, hitting his head against the desk um, since, since whenever the draw was on Friday because it's just terrible luck for Paris Saint-Germain. One, you have this psychological block, as you mentioned, of playing Barcelona. I think Eric is right that we can't really make any acceptable predictions as to how things are going to pan out. I think it's interesting to note that Barcelona have been a little bit off the pace in La Liga this season so far. So perhaps there's a glimmer of hope there. But I think Unai Emery has played Barcelona something like 20-something times and he's beaten them once. So the omens aren't particularly good for Paris Saint-Germain. And the, the one thing that it will do is that it puts more pressure on Unai Emery, not necessarily to win that game, but all of a sudden, if Paris Saint-Germain, Paris Saint-Germain are going into that match, I think it's fair to say as outsiders. They're definitely not going to be favourites for that clash. And everybody knows that. So from, from that point of view, you can say that Unai Emery is perhaps in a positive situation. But the problem is, Nathan, if PSG get knocked out in the next round of the Champions League and then don't win Ligue 1, mop up in the other cups, it becomes very difficult for Nasser Khalifi to justify to the Qatari owners, we actually need to keep this man on for another season. Because right now, I think it's fair to say that if, if you were Nasser Khalifi and you could take Laurent Blanc back and start the season again, you would have. For Emery to be in that position in December, it's very worrying. And had he got a Leicester City, for example, in the draw, at least he could have potentially built some Champions League momentum. Now, this is a colossal ta- task sorry, for Les Parisiens. And aside from that, we can't really predict what's going to happen. There could be a raft of injuries that happen for either side. It's clear that Paris Saint-Germain are going to sign at least a couple of players in the January window. But maybe Barcelona are supposed to be, supposed to be also in the market for a right-back, um, according to Spanish reports. So it's a really difficult one. But hopefully we're going to see two good clashes. At the end of the day, I think the only comfort French football can take in this draw is really that we've got two European giants facing off each other. And that's always, to to, to a certain extent, entertaining to watch. Yeah, and it's certainly one of the ties to look forward to. But another really interesting clash is, is Monaco's versus Manchester City. And 
the, you know, the Monaco being the excellent scorers they are, the top in Europe at the moment, they also have the best conversion rate of any team in the top five countries in the last 20 years, which is an outstanding stat in its own right. But they, Man- Manchester City fans, Eric, really can't take this team lightly because if they can keep this momentum going, Monaco will be going to be a very, very tough side come uh, February time as well. Oh, absolutely. I think that they take them lightly at their at their own peril. Uh, thinking about how how Tottenham fans, you know, I was on a podcast, uh, a different podcast, previewing the, the two matches that Monaco had against Spurs, and uh, the people with whom I was on were very dismissive of the fact that I thought a that Spurs could get a result at White Hart Lane, and the same in the in the reverse or at Wembley Stadium, uh, and the same in the reverse fixture, uh, and. It, it came back to bite them. I, I, I don't think that we've seen Monaco be cowed by anybody. Uh, I don't think that uh, the quality of center backs that Manchester City have uh, is going to be is going to be any comfort for uh, for their team. Seeing how they they've been they were eviscerated by Leicester City, another team who can play very effectively on the counter. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I would make Monaco honestly probably clear favorites at this point. I think that uh, there's just that you know Pep Guardiola is is a master at keeping the ball, but uh, Leonardo Jardim has showed himself to be equally as adept tactically. And if if you have the type of uh, clinical ability that his his strikers have shown this season, there's no reason to think that that Monaco can't uh, can't and shouldn't go into that that matchup as heavy favorites, despite the uh, riches of the Premier League club. Yeah, yeah, and Christian, you, we mentioned obviously that there's the January transfer window and plenty of time between these games, but that's a heavy schedule for an English club like Manchester City to get through that crazy Christmas schedule that we have here mm. in England. And if Monaco are rested, they've had they carry on their good form. Manchester City may be a little bit tired and can't get the reinforcements in that you can in January. It can be difficult to find the right kind of players. It, it could be a really big test for Pep Guardiola, who has taken over a club that really want to go to that next level in Europe. I think this is a beautiful encounter for Monaco. Sure, it's not the easiest one they could have had on paper for the next round, but what we're going to see, I think, at least British media and maybe the rest of European media will follow outside of France. They're going to pick Manchester City's clear favourites. Monaco are going to go into these two games with no fear and also no huge European expectations on their backs. It's a perfect game as well for Monaco to sort of raise their profile uh, in Europe, but also about attracting players in the summer who are going to need to replace the likes of Thomas Lomar, Bernardo Silva, who are going to have Europe at their feet in the summer. So I think this is a beautiful draw for Monaco. They can, as I said, they can go in there and play without fear. And if you're Pep Guardiola, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we're now in December and the Spanish tactician still doesn't have a settled starting eleven at Manchester City. There's a complete contrast to Leonardo Hardim, who for months now has been operating with a 4-4-2. Bakayoko, Fabino in the middle of the park, Lamar and Silva either side, and then Falcao up top with, well, one of the three, Germain, Mbappé and uh, Carrillo. So it's, it's a fantastic tie for Monaco. I just hope that no injuries occur to key players between now and the middle of February when the first leg is. But no, really exciting. And I think Hardim's uh, press conference immediately after the draw for the, uh, the Coupe de la Ligue match uh, said it all, really. He was saying that we are going into these two clashes to win, to come out winners. And it's just a wonderful thing to see uh, another club that isn't Paris Saint-Germain with confidence, with flair and with a chance in the Champions League knockout stages. Yeah, and they should go with that and with absolutely every belief in the play, way they're playing at the moment. Let's shift gears to the Europa League now and to the team that, that dropped in, and that's uh, Lyon. They'll take on ours at Altmar of, of Holland, who have not been excellent in the Eredivisie this season. Eric, are you hopeful of that kind of tie? Is that the kind of tie you were looking for in the next ra- in the ra- uh, round for the um, Europa League? Yeah, I mean, considering some of the, the sides we could have drawn, Manchester United, uh, it, it being a good example of that, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's a, it's a it's a strong one. I think that we we should look at we Leon should look at uh, look at the club as being uh, a good opponent. I think that uh, you know it'll give it'll give uh, Genesio a, a chance to 
sort of put some of this antipathy behind behind him and, and make a good run. We saw that be a real string springboard for the club in 2013-14 when they went to the quarterfinals and lost to Juventus. I think that that gave uh, the players of that side a lot of confidence heading into the next season and uh, was really key in terms of allowing them to be an attacking cohesive unit and and to uh, push for the league as they did in 2014-15. And hopefully with hopefully this can be of a similar of a similar uh, a similar result. Um, I don't think Azed are a very dangerous team. They've, you know, not had a great defense. They had a kind of a weird group, which they qualified through. They, they had uh, Dundalk, Zenit, and um, an Israeli team. I, I can't remember who. But they didn't exactly qualify through a terribly difficult group. Uh, so I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not really expecting most out of them. I, I would think Leon would be comfortable favorites to go through, especially as they have started to show just a bit more form as of late. And they've they've not. It's a bit hard to say, but they've they've not been excellent in in the Eredivisie, sitting fifth at the moment with a four draw, three draws, and a loss in their last six games. So they're not in the the best of form themselves. But there's a lot of time between now and then. But uh, Christian, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, and we spoke about this on the preview show uh, previously. That with Leon dropping into the Europa League, how should they treat this competition? Should they use it like they did? previously where they bleed a few youngsters in and maybe they're ready for the first team next season or if they maybe get into those quarterfinals do they maybe chance their arm at it and try and see if they can sneak into the final I think it really depends who you are Nathan if you're Jean-Michel Aulas the Lyon president I don't think you want to go far in this Europa League competition at all I think the less exposure that some of his brilliant young talents get on the European stage and frankly from his point of view meaningless uh, competition financially the better <laughs> in, in a really cynical way so I don't think he's going to be too fussed about the competition I think if you're a Lyon fan it's a perfect opportunity to and it's a big if if Lyon can sort out a reliable attacking force and I don't mean the the sort of one that Genesio seems to have fabricated in the last three four weeks which is getting very lucky if we're being honest in recent fixtures to um, you know to string a set of results together. If he can sort out the attack, maybe bring in a face or two in the January window in that department, of course, we've got Rashid Ghazal, who's going to be going to the African Cup of Nations. Then maybe you have something to, to really go at this competition with. Uh, because, yeah, let's face it, Lyon have come down from the Champions League. They should be one of the top sides in the Europa League now. And and from a fan point of view, it could be an excellent little adventure to have. Also for Genesio, because it could be become a good fullback plan for him if still by uh, February or March, Lyon are currently not in the top three or not anywhere near the top three in terms of qualifying for the Champions League next season. A sort of semi-final or final of the Europa League could potentially save Bruno Genesio's job. So I think you have to take it from multiple perspectives. But ultimately, simply if we're being selfish as, as French football analysts for the UEFA coefficient we want Lyon to do as well as they possibly can so that we can get as many French sides into European competitions for the seasons to come yeah and I, I personally don't think if they get to that quarterfinal stage they should absolutely go for it I think that most more teams should but uh, let's talk about the final one <clears throat> excuse me in, in this one and that's Saint-Etienne who we've said before Erica are really aiming to be have a better run at European football and they got through the group stages although Maybe by the skin of their team, well, with a good win in the final game against uh, Anderlecht, but they've probably not got the, the best of ties, have they? <laughs> I mean, perhaps we've Manchester United in recent years have really seemed to have had a hex over them and knock around the European competition. I think that they've they've generally uh, not impressed, and I think that Jose Mourinho is going to have a clear mandate to put this team in the best in the best place possible. Uh, in the league, that the Europa League is not going to be necessarily a priority. Uh, he hasn't. He's played relatively strong sides in the competition, but I don't think that. I think it depends where Manchester United are. If they, you know, they had a decent win over Spurs at the weekend. Uh, if they can continue to keep that pressure on the top four, and if they're in that, if they're in in that neighborhood, uh, come come mid February when this tie happens, uh, there shouldn't be any reason to think that uh, he's going to put any emphasis on this competition. There's no. You know, I, I understand that even a second-string Manchester United team will be a you know a tall order for Saint Etienne at full strength, but uh, 
the priority has to be to be back in the Champions League and to uh, be pushing to put this team back where they were. And given the investment that this club's made over the past three or four years, I, I think that's a given, and I think that we we shouldn't look at uh, the club placing any weight uh, on uh, the, the level of this competition. And it's it'll be an interesting one because they... They are quite similar in a weird way of, of not being quite consistent this season. I mean, Saint-Étienne have flailed between um, putting you to sleep and thrilling you <laughs> in the last moment. And and being a Manchester United fan, it's been very, very similar watching those this season. But let, Christian, is there what kind of problems might Saint-Étienne create for Manchester United in this one? What, what will, for those uh, fans listening, what should they be watching out for? Well, Manchester United, from my understanding, have had a difficult time of it in front of goal mm-hmm. uh, within the last three, three, four months. Yes, Latan Ibrahimovic is, is now maybe coming to a bit of form recently, but generally speaking, Saint-Étienne are one of the most defensive, defensively efficient sides in France. And this is exactly what Europe is about for a side like Saint-Étienne. It's, it's about adventure. It's about daring to dream. And I think there were a couple of players who spoke to local media last week talking about how they wanted to draw Manchester United. And for many of these individuals, this is going to be the biggest game of their lives or the two biggest games of their lives. So this is about an adventure both for the fans, for the club and for the players. Someone like Loïc Perrin, okay, a man who's been at that club all of his professional career, an individual who I'm sure we all agree could have potentially gone on to better things. Captain of Saint-Étienne. Uh, Stefan Ruffier, the goalkeeper, who is in arguably his best form ever, I would be willing to state right now. You know, things are coming together. Alexander Soderlund even scored a couple of goals. Robert Baric is coming back from fitness. He's going to be fine and fit by the time we get to February. We all know how Galtier is going to set up. He's going to set up defensively. I think we might even see another sort of five-man defense like we saw in the final group game. I mean, depending on your interpretation of the formation, against uh, Anderlecht. Uh, so, you know, this is a brilliant tie for Saint-Étienne. Again, all the pressure is going to be off them. And let's not forget that this time last year in the knockout, well, not this time last year, but when they play Manchester United, uh, obviously their fixture last year in, in that sort of position was against Barcelona. Had it not been for a really like, bad lapse of concentration towards the end of that second leg, Saint-Étienne would have gone further. I think they are definitely a sort of Europa League specialist now. And I'm looking forward to these two ties. I think it's going to be a fantastic occasion for everybody involved from live outside. Yeah, and, and Manchester United have only just broken their European duct away from home. So Saint-Étienne should take that in mind that this Geoffrey Gichard that can create such a great atmosphere. And while they have been quite decent at Old Trafford, at least, um, if they hold down the Britches, then it can get a nil-nil. There's every chance for Saint-Étienne in this one, I think. And it'll be nice to see a nice Pogba off. Maybe they might do a uh, dab off at some point in the game, but we'll, we'll wait and see on that one yet. You but, just uh, couldn't resist on that line. <laughs> <couldn't you? laughs> it, it was waiting to happen, wasn't it? Uh, this week saw a slightly late Halloween twist to Liga as fog descended on parts of France. Uh, Nantes' game with Com was postponed. Dijon and Marseille was moved to Saturday, but was still really affected by the weather. And Toulouse against Lorient was almost unseeable at times, even with the orange ball. But Eric, was it right to let some of these games go ahead? I don't think so. I think that Liga has a, a less than stellar policy uh, against uh, Against this, but this is this is part of the the symptom of of the shortage of, of money in the game. That the costs involved to reschedule these matches uh, would put some of these smaller clubs uh, under really dire financial pressure. You have to pay the stewards again. You have to pay for police protection, for traffic, for everything again, uh, without getting additional receipts from the gate. And that's you know that's. Unfortunately, the way things are in French football, that there's, this is a league that, uh, despite its obvious ability for developing young talent, uh, still still is operating at a lower level than the other other any of the other big five leagues in Europe. Um, and it, it's frustrating when this happens because it's it's you know frankly dangerous for the players, and it's not worth it for the fans. But uh, you know, I think that there's immense pressure on 
the referees association on ALFP from the clubs themselves to not to have to reschedule these matches. So uh, I think that, that that's really the long and short of it, that what other option uh, does the league have if, if their members can't, can't cope with these postponements and reschedulings? Christian, was this right by the players and their safety in mind to schedule these matches in these kind of conditions? Although I suppose at a camera level lower down, it did, didn't look too bad at player level. I think the one game that was that was slightly getting to the point where there could have been some danger was towards the end of that game between uh, Dijon and Marseille, which had already been rescheduled, where the rule is, by my understanding, that you have to be able to see from one corner of the pitch to the other in order to keep the game playing. And there was absolutely no way that in the, in the dying embers of that match between Dijon and Marseille, you could have done that, uh, according to journalists who were there. So... Yes, but ultimately, we the, the LFP is always going to think about the interest of the club first and, and not the players. And although maybe that's wrong from a moral point of view, it's how the system works and we have to get the games played. I, I, I just want to quickly mention that from the fan perspective, at least, it must have been a difficult one because I, I, I was watching the highlights of the Toulouse-Lorient no, uh, Toulouse game, sorry, and... The third goal where where Ola Toivonen scores his hat trick, I had to watch it again on the replay because you cannot, you can't see it. There's no way you can see it. And from a from a fan point of view, I, I, my heart goes out to anyone who was at any of those two games between Dijon Marseille and, and Toulouse Lorient because at times you couldn't see anything. I hope they replayed some of the goals on the on the big screens there or anything like that because. It must have been a terrible waste of money to sit out in the cold on a on a, a Saturday evening on the Toulouse one and just watch clouds and and the occasional movement out of it. Because even with the orange ball in that Toulouse game, you, the counter attack with Braithwaite, I, I didn't, I couldn't see him. I could not see him through the fog, and I couldn't see it through Turbine. And, and I can't, I can't understand how the goalkeepers have seen it as well. That it, it did look, like I say, it did look better from the camera view from the lower camera as they were looking at the um, through the, the clouds. But from a spectator point of view, it, they might as well have gone home and just hoped that it got away. But it's something, for, at least for the LFP, to think about. Yes, I, I agree that the, the club should confirm it in the finance and everything like that, rescheduling the entire things. But it's a strange one that they may have to think about for the future. But let's chat about the Ballon d'Or now, which is obviously back with France football rather than the, uh, let's say, less grimy hands of uh, FIFA maybe, but we want to talk about the results and, but also French league players in there. And, and Christian, it's a strange list of the, the top 20. Um, is there anyone you, if you were to carry on that list, where would the first current league player sit? We have Zlatan Ibrahimovic there on 13th, who, who would have played obviously half of his season in, in French football last season, but where would your first league player sit? I think it would probably, I think it would have to be Verratti or Thiago Silva um, if they'd been nominated. Uh, I mean, look, they, they've tried to make it a bit more jazzy. I think that was the aim they were doing on the Monday uh, to make the whole thing stretch out for three hours, which then resulted in some sort of weird countdown with, you know, starting from three players on joint 17th place. And ultimately, the, the whole fanfare in the end with Cristiano now they're picking up the ball. It just wasn't quite the same. He's all by himself, apart from the director of France Football and um, and a presenter who's used on on l'équipe de l'équipe TV. So you know, for a time, France Football. So it was a bit sure what use this this is this has got in terms of this new format, especially as now you're going to have the FIFA FIFA are going to do their own for quote unquote the best award. So yeah, it was all a bit strange. I think, you know, ultimately, congratulations to Antoine Griezmann. Uh, had a fantastic year, even though he maybe faltered in vital moments. The Euro 2016 final, missing that penalty in the Champions League final as well. But a great recognition of his talent. Obviously, the way in which the point system works or worked this year was slightly different to what you'd seen with the FIFA France Football collaboration. Each country has one representative, one journalist from uh, uh, one publication who makes three votes the first the person they put in first gets five points the person they put points and the person they put in third gets one point so you know christian 
Cristiano Ronaldo won by about 400 points. I think you're going to be very hard-pressed to disagree with that. But my criticism really lies with France football in the way in which they have tried to reach work next year. Yeah, we'll see some changes. Mm, yeah, because it, it, it was a little bit strange and there were some, let's say, dissenting voices from a few areas. One particular, Robert Lewandowski, who finished 16th. And I think he only, was it he received one third place vote, was it? That, that's all he got from every single nation, which is, for a player who had the season he had, is it is maybe a little bit underhanded. But Eric, what was your thoughts on the... On the France football announcement, was there? It was it. It was obviously a change from the from the FIFA Rainbow form, but there's some odd names in that in that top twenty list. I mean, they all had good seasons. Ru Petruccio and Rio Mares and Jamie Vardy have finished quite high. But is this the kind of one you want to see go forward, or is there maybe some adjustments you would like to see to the to the Ballon d'Or next season? Well, I mean, I, I think what might be more what might be more interesting is to see is to see. Uh, See, see these journalists pick a pick a first eleven. That there is more representation across the positions. I mean, let's face it, we have to go all the way down to Pepe and uh, and Buffon in, in a joint ninth place to see anybody who's not uh, nominally a, a, a striker or 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 a winger. Uh, and the fact is, is, is as much as they those players catch the eye, uh, it it, un, it undoubtedly skews uh, perception as to who the best player. Supposedly, in the world is, and that's the thing. You know, Thiago Silva is. I've just finished writing my profile about him for for the GFF 100, and he's you know he's the kind of player who, you know, I think is much 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 better and more consistent at at his role than is a is a Neymar, is a Jamie Vardy, is a Riyad Mahrez. But because of the way that this is set up, you know, our attention naturally gravitates towards those attacking players. And it's a source of frustration for me because I think that, uh, you know, we have players that come from so-called lesser leagues and, and really impressed and like, oh, where did this guy come from? Well, because if they're not an attacking player, you're not seeing them rub these eye-catching stats. And, and there's somewhat of a, a surprise when they, when they do go to a so-called bigger league and really succeed. Um, so I think that there's some element of that being flawed that, you know, perhaps or perhaps, you know, even if we're, if we're going away from nominating an entire team, Nominate uh, a player in each of the each of the four main roles in on the field: midfield, attack, defense, and, and goalkeeper. Something like that to give a more equitable representation to the way that the players are on the pitch. Uh, I have no doubt that you know Ronaldo and Messi in particular are some, you know, probably two of the best five footballers the world's ever seen. Uh, but again, the the way that the rest of those players stack up. I mean, Neymar. You know, did not really have that that strong of a of a season uh, w- with Barcelona. I mean, not not to be too critical of him, but yeah, I I, I just don't see it. And the same thing with with Jamie Vardy. I mean, he, before his hat trick at the weekend, he was invisible for Leicester. Um, Pepe again, you know, yeah. I mean, he was he was imperious in the European Championships and uh, helped Real win win the uh, European Cup, uh, Champions League. But uh, hasn't hasn't been quite at the race as at the races uh, in the current season, so a, a lot of surprising decisions there. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that more a more uh, holistic approach to uh, the players vis-a-vis their positions is really necessary for this award to uh, get more respect from serious observers of football. Yeah, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that, Eric. I mean, it's even weirder to think that. I'm looking at the list now, and Arturo Vidal is the first centre midfielder in there, and he's 14th. And there's not many more. Oh, I'm trying to think of all the centre midfielders in the world and how insulted they must be that it took forever before any of them even mentioned. Some there's even two goalkeepers in front of the first midfielder, which traditional centre midfielder, which does seem strange. And I, I always think about personal awards like that. That is is comparing mustard to mustard when you when you're thinking. Ronaldo and Messi, but when you're comparing Ronaldo to, like you say, Thiago Silva, or even even on the same list, Pepe, it's, they're completely different players playing completely different roles on the completely different ends of the pitch, and it it becomes sort of the issue of where well, do you draw that line? And yeah, talk about central midfielders. Where's Sergio Busquets? Are you kidding me? Yeah, <laughs> it's strange, isn't it? And and look where Leicester are now, and uh, why isn't N'Golo Conte on that list? 
for his important contribution to Leicester where they've yeah. fallen off the cliff without someone like that. It does, yeah. It's the fall and the, the fame of the current generation of... Uh, well, I suppose it's been most generations where previous Ballon d'Ors as well that have gone to defenders seem like token gifts almost like to like um, Cannavaro when he won it the World Cup year. It just seemed like, oh, you've been a good player for so long. Here's a Ballon d'Or. Well done. Rather than oh, you've had a terrific season at your role, well done, here's the Ballon d'Or for being a terrific player during your season, which is how everyone else gets it. But uh, we will ever be frustrated. Well, also, it's, it's this obsession with statistics now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Looking at how many goals and assists a year is just far more sexy than looking at interceptions or pass completion rates. Not to And me, ultimately, though. that's why... Yeah, well, that's good, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. There's still some people out there. Um, but, you know, so ultimately that's that's the reason why you've only got your first central midfielder in 13th with Vidal. Yeah. Give give me a solid defender that makes three tackles and three interceptions a game every day of the week, I think. But no, <laughs> never mind that I'm the uh, the frumpy one that doesn't like attacking football. But <laughs> let's, let's move on to our final topic this week, which is investment in Lyon and as a Chinese company has invested 100 million euros into the club. Eric, give us a few more details on that, if you can. And what does this mean for the club going forward? Yeah, the firm is called IDJ, um, and they are, they've invested 100 million euros, which gives them a 20% share of the club's stakes, uh, as well as two seats on the board. It also gives uh, Leon shares in uh, train development schemes and image rights in China. Um, as to what Leon should do with this money, I, I think that, Infrastructure is pretty solid for the club. They have uh, this beautiful new stadium, the Stade Lumiere, Park OL, whatever it's called, uh, based on the competition, obviously, for certain naming rights. Uh, it can be it's called different things at different times. Um, it, I think it makes them they've – got, they've got the model in place that to, to give them sustained success. Uh, for me, the most attractive thing is it makes them more likely to be able to keep players. Uh, I think that Corintento Liso um, is now the hot player that – uh, is you know been, been bandied about as as being the next big thing to come out of Lyon. I think Lacazette, you know, is still obviously a target for players. He's supposedly just signed a his, a contract that's given him an increased release clause. I should say, uh, not necessarily the the financial terms as regards that, but uh, Toliso has been linked with you know some of the best clubs in Europe as well. Uh, we see, we've seen Samuel Mtiti depart in the recent past as well, and I think that. If Leon have this financial backing, uh, they're not under as much financial pressure. Uh, since the beginning of their, uh, you know, their period of success in the last 15 or 20 years, uh, dating back to their early titles in 2001, uh, what Leon have always done is, uh, is sell players on, whether that's buying them from another, play, another club and then selling them on in terms of uh, Michael Essien or selling on Academy products in terms of a Karim Benzema. They've always uh, made a strong a strong play towards selling on youth. And I think that they've supplemented uh, that, that uh, outflow of youth by, you know, solid, by using solid international scouting. And the likes of Janino and Chris, I, I think, uh, are probably the best two examples of that. But uh, beyond that, uh, now, that the, now that the internet has really changed the way that the game is viewed, that the game is scouted, uh, Leon can't necessarily rely on that sort of thing anymore. And in order for them to be continue to be successful or to return to the level of success they experienced in the in the two thousands, uh, they're going to need to be able to hold on to some of these young players because their efficacy at turning players over and scouting in, in other leagues uh, is going to be is is not going to be at the same level uh, that it was it once was because other clubs are operating with the same advantages. You don't need to pay a scout; you can get a a Y scout membership or a membership to another one of these scouting services and watch almost literally any match. Uh, in the world and get it get a sense of who these players are and to have Leon do this I think that we can look uh, that there's a, a good precedent in the league for 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 a balanced philosophy in this way and that's Monaco um, that Leon can if they can copy that mo- that model uh, and there's no reason that they couldn't uh, continue to have success uh, and, e- and even on a better scale and Monaco have all these exciting young players but very few of them are actually academy products uh, uh, they've most of them have been brought in from other clubs. Um, whereas if Leon can combine their very successful academy with a similar philosophy, I think there's no reason to think that they couldn't uh, surpass or even uh, surpass or at least equal uh, the level of success that Monaco have had 
particularly in the Leonardo Jardim era. But, but Eric, unfortunately, I don't think they can because the, the thing that steps Monaco apart from, or the thing that did put Monaco apart from Lyon and Paris Saint-Germain in terms of scouting was their relationship with Jorge Mendes, uh, specifically vis-a-vis -vis Brazilian talents, the likes of Jemerson, uh, Wallace, when he came in, didn't do too bad a job. Bernardo Silva from Portugal. Yes, there have been some misses as well. Ivan Cavallero, Helder Costa. But Monaco had a relationship with a major agent. The problem that Lyon have now is they've spent the last five, four or five years relying on youth talent. And apart from the good relationships that Olas has with French agents, like Orbis, um, like, uh, and others, Lyon are going to have to work very, very hard to just put themselves out there vis-a-vis uh, -vis the agent game again in order to get the connections to sign those players. Because your point about the way in which scouting has changed in the last five years is absolutely correct in the sense that everybody is aware of the next best thing. Now, that's no longer good enough. You have to have a relationship with the individual who is in charge of the next best thing. And I think that's where Lyon are going to fall uh, when they're trying to compete with Monaco to 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 create a sort of similar strategy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the league and transfer policy. Yeah, and it does become an interesting one when the investment is, is let's not joke about it, is this, it is a significant amount of money to be added into the club, but does it really put them on the same playing field as, as these other big clubs like Monaco and, and Paris Saint-Germain? It's, it's a tough one to take, but like you say, Eric, it, it, it's surely trying to use that money to go down the right path, isn't it? And and well, I, trying I think, to find the right way. Yeah, I, I think that it's not it's not a matter of being able to to splash splash the cash on players. It's just a matter of being able to put these put these players on better on better wages, so they're not as tempted to leave. And I mean, there's more to come. I think Lucas Toussart, uh, what we've seen of him this season, he's he's looked really good. Uh, Olivier Caymans, another one. There's still more to come from Leon. The the way Maxwell Cornet continued to develop, and he's another player who is not an academy product. He's from Mets. Was was brought in. I think that keep bearing players like that in mind. Uh, that I think Christian's point is very well taken in terms of agent relationships. But uh, that's not that's not the only reason for Monaco's success. I mean, the player that's made the difference for them this year is Kamel Glick, and he's he, he's no by no means a party to that. That's that's just down through good scouting and. And to and through bringing a player in that that makes sense. I mean, it's the same. And there's and there's more to be had. I mean, you know, Leon can continue to scout for players um, within France and and at other other clubs around Europe and and develop in that way in a more organic way. It's not it's not necessarily down to. Uh, I appreciate that that the the quality of player that uh, Mendes allowed Monaco to purchase, but pardon me, it's not solely. Uh, it's not solely the reason for Monaco's success. Mm. It's isn't no, for sure, for sure. I mean, the thing is, obviously, Luis Campos came with with uh, Mendes when when the Monaco project started with Rebrolovlev, and I think Monaco themselves would be interesting to see if they can continue to pull out these gems from nowhere to replace the individuals that are going to imminently leave for Europe's finest in the summer because Luis Campos has now departed. I think it's going to be a very interesting. Uh, thing to watch but Nathan I think just just more broadly it's an extremely exciting time to be in French football with Lyon's investment coming from China they join Nice obviously who had investment from China this summer Marseille now have investment from the United States Lille are about to get investment from Gerard Lopez uh, Nancy supposedly about to get an investment from a sort of Canadian consortium so it's really exciting to see businessmen from around the world seeing the potential of investing in a league and club and there's no doubt that more money is going to help at least the top sides increase the competition between the top sides and i think you know ojisini's without the chinese investment that they had this summer they could not have signed mario balotelli they could not have signed Younes belonda with the wages that they're on and they couldn't have signed dante either and i think you can make an argument that mario balotelli you know might even controversially maybe upset the squad balance now that Alessandro Player is playing so well. But Dante and Yunus Belonda have been so important to Nice that without without the Chinese investment, Nice wouldn't be where they are today. 
And that's an interesting point going forward. Hopefully that attracts more investment. And as that, even for the smaller clubs like Nancy, that, that hopefully that helps them strengthen their infrastructure, continue creating great young players like they have done in the past and, and solidify a little bit for the future. But um, that's all the time we have for this week. My thanks to Eric and Christian for joining me. Join us for the preview show on Thursday that will be hosted by myself as Eric is away. And we will see you here at the same time, same place, well, on Monday, hopefully the next time, <laughs> next week. Uh, Aviento and goodbye. <laughs>